the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Thanks for joining me this morning. Um, I wanted to take the time on this broadcast. We've, we've had so much, um, so much debate on this subject. I did a, a broadcast on this previously. Uh, for those of you that are watching, thanks for sharing this morning. Um, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And I know I'm just jumping in because we have a lot to cover today, and I want to cover it. Uh, we'll go back on this video later and add timestamps for people that uh, watch later. It'll be helpful. This will be actually a very helpful training video uh, for those that have questions regarding this subject. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Um, and so, listen, I'm being very fair on this. We had a lot of discussion last night on Twitter, a lot of discussion last night on Instagram after um, what I posted because it's just wild to me uh, how many people are into this now. And so I'm going to go over all of the, I had somebody write a ton of uh, scriptural responses on Twitter, and then I had someone else write a bunch of scriptural responses on Instagram. And so I'm going to cover all of those scriptural responses with you in context so that you can see exactly what we're talking about. And just from the outset, if you want to know my position, where I'm coming from as I go through these, and, and listen, we're going to go through them fairly. I'm not going to throw a bias on it. We're going to go through these passages in the context that they were written and look at what the Bible actually says. And we're going to talk about some of these claims, but my position as you know from the previous broadcast, is that a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon spirit. That's my position from studying the word, not just because I was raised that way or I've heard it preached and that's the only thing I've ever heard. I'm looking at the scripture. And, and let me just say this from the very beginning. The only way that we can develop any kind of theology is by looking to the scripture. One of the things that I see a lot uh, in this uh, conversation is, well, listen, I've seen, and then they'll, then they'll give you a story about what they experienced in a meeting one time or what they had happen to their loved one or a friend one time. You cannot build theology on personal experience. Let me say that again and pu please put it in the comments. You cannot build theology on personal experience. If you did that, it would mean that theology is subjective rather than objective, meaning theology would be fluid. It would always be changing based on people's personal experiences. But we do not base theology on our personal experiences. Rather, we base it on what the Word of God says. I will say this, I've said it on the broadcast multiple times, all that can be known about God is only found in his word. Let me say it one more time so that we get this. All that can be known about God is only found in his written word. Amen. And so we base 
what we believe about God, what we believe about angels, demons, salvation, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, healing. We base all of those things on what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? And that's how we base our theology. The Bible does not change. God's word is eternal. God's word is preserved for us for this purpose, right? It's for this purpose. And every word in this Bible is inspired by God, breathed out of the mouth of God. So it's our authority. We always go back to our authority, which is the Bible. And so I'm not going to waste any time because there's a lot on this list that I have that was given to me uh, by those who believe that Christians can be demon possessed um, that we want to cover. And we want to look at that in context. Okay. My contention. So just to let you know what kicked all of this off is that um, I'm just so tired of seeing it, just so tired of seeing it that uh, I posted this on Twitter and Instagram yesterday. I'll read it to you so that you can see what I'm talking about. But this was my tweet. Number one, neither Jesus nor the apostles ever cast a demon out of a Christian in the Bible. Number two, the Bible offers no instruction on what to do if a believer is possessed by a demon. Number three, we are empowered to cast demons out and we have all authority. And then number four, our bodies as Christians are already filled with God's spirit. And so those are, and I put enough nonsense, those are irrefutable facts. Those four things are irrefutable because I'm, I'm basing them on scripture. And we'll, we'll go through these passages but we don't have any stories of Jesus or the apostles casting a demon out of a believer. We don't have any story or we don't have any passages of scripture telling us what we should do if we're demon possessed or showing us how not to become demon possessed. We don't even have that. And then uh, we understand we're commanded to cast demons out just like Jesus and the apostles did. And we've been empowered to do so. And then of course our spirits as Christians are already united with Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that. And I'll deal with that as well. So there's, all, there's already a spirit possessing us. That's the Holy Spirit. And so we'll talk about that too. So let's, let's talk here about uh, what the Bible says and some of these contradictions or, or what they would use as proof texts that Christians can in fact be demon-possessed. Christians can, in fact, that's what they, uh, th those that would disagree with me would say, no, Christians can be demon-possessed. And maybe they would use the word demonized. They say, no, Christians can be demonized. They can be demonized. And I'll, I'll talk about why they say that word rather than demon-possessed um, in a moment. But um, in fact, maybe I'll start with that. The word demonized. One of the reasons they say that is because in the Greek text, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, in the Greek text, the word is daimonizomai, which could be translated demonized. What their argument is, is that the English, the English differentiation is irrelevant because the original text of the Greek does not say demon-possessed or oppressed of the devil. It just says demonized, daimonizomai. And so to say 
well, no, this one's demon-possessed and this one's just oppressed by the devil is irrelevant, according to them, because they're basically the same thing, demonized. Someone is demonized. But we're gonna sh- I'm going to show you from Scripture that they are two different things. They absolutely are. And not only are these two different things, we can see that Jesus and the apostles dealt with them differently. Okay, that's important. That is important. Not only are they different things, Jesus and the apostles dealt with them differently in ministry, practical ministry. Uh, I could take time to tell you this, but um, the Greek language is, uh, it's very different than English. And I'll tell you how. If you've studied Greek for any period of time, one of the guys that I was talking with said he took Greek for two years at Biola University, but one of the things he would have learned uh, studying Greek is that Greek words have something called a semantic range. That means that they could have a range of meanings, that, and, and those that were writing it and speaking it understood that they could have a range of meanings. You can't just take one Greek word and say, well, it always means this, and you get into trouble when you too narrowly try to nail down uh, a Greek word. I'll give you an example of this, right? Um, People will say, well, you know, um, for example, um, agape means the God kind of love. Whereas there, and and, you know, there's different Greek words for love in the English, in the English language, right? So you have, um, you have uh, like, for example, the, the city Philadelphia, uh, it, it means that it's called the city of brotherly love because in the Greek, Adelphoi means brothers, right? And then Phila, that, that uh, prefix there means love. And so it's called the city of brotherly love. But that, that word, that um, phileo in the Greek, say, well, that means brotherly love, but agape means godly love. Uh, And then, you know, eros means erotic love or romantic love or whatever. But see, if you go through the scripture, that's not actually true. Actually, you'll see those words in the text interchangeably used. You'll see agape used interchangeably. You'll see phileo used interchangeably. So you can't too narrowly nail down a word in the Greek language and say, this always means this. In fact, there's something that I use that scholars use called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It's abbreviated the TDNT, the TDNT. It gives you a full history of Greek words. All the Greek words in the New Testament gives you a full history of them in the Bible and then extra biblical usage, right? Writings in Koine Greek that were not uh, written by the the authors of the Bible, written by others, by Plato and, uh, and, and others that were philosophers goes even further back to Hellenistic Greek usage and other things. The word daimonizomai, if you look at the history of it, what they're saying, that means it means demonized. It just means demonized. They would be interested to find out that it's such an elusive word that it didn't always mean an evil spirit even. In fact, those that were philosophers who were writing about it, those that were into uh, knowledge, like the Gnostics, those types of people use the word daimonizomai to just mean a spirit that came along to help and give you knowledge. Earlier on than that, even in the Old Testament, when they made the 
Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, the word daimonizomai, which is rarely used, could just mean a supernatural spirit. So in some senses, it was being used interchangeably with angels or demons. So it didn't just mean evil spirits. It was the word for a supernatural spirit. Um, I'll tell you this, even further than that, the word daimonizomai uh, was used a lot of times in reference to idols or engraven images of false gods. It didn't mean that the actual stone idol was a demon spirit. It was just telling the person who was using that, we're using this as a derogatory term to show how people that are followers of God should view even an idol as though it were an evil spirit. So the word daimonizomai, even in historical usage in language and writing, didn't just mean evil demon spirit. So I'm, I'm saying that, and you can find all the things that I just referenced in the TDNT, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. The reason I'm telling you that is because um, it's important to understand that though language is important, no question, we couldn't have the Bible without language, right? The, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek, they are important. We wouldn't have the Bible, but it's dangerous to try to nail a word down so specifically that it only means the thing you want it to mean because the writers didn't use it that way. In the same way I made the example of agape and phileo and eros, it doesn't mean the same thing always. And sometimes it does, there, sometimes it's interchangeable. So to just nail down daimonizomai and say it always means that that person, it's, it's to say, well, it means they weren't demon possessed, they were just demonized, or it means they were demon possessed, not just oppressed of the devil. It doesn't always do that. And so to build a theology on a Greek word, in fact, anybody that's interested in going deeper in this kind of a study, you would do very well as a preacher or anyone that even has internet ministry to read a book by uh, D.A. Carson, D.A. Carson, and the book is called Exegetical Fallacies, Exegetical Fallacies. It will help you immensely when you're looking at these types of studies because he shows in the book, and he, he's, he's a scholar, D.A. Carson shows in Exegetical Fallacies that uh, preachers make the mistake of trying to narrow a word down so much when the Greek language has a semantic range. It can mean multiple things. And I'm gonna show you that more in the study today. It can mean multiple things. So you get into trouble when you try to, to too narrowly narrow, narrow down or nail down a Greek word or a Hebrew word, or Aramaic for that matter, because there's a range, a semantic range, okay? And so I'm gonna show you, but. Here's the problem that we face when we're looking at this subject of can a Christian be demon-possessed is, and I've, I've, I've made this argument and people can't seem to give me any scriptural uh, answer to this, but we're going to go through their, their answers that really don't give an answer, but we'll still deal with what they said. Um, my point remains, there is no picture in the New Testament of a demon being cast out of a Christian, there is no picture of that. There's no picture of that by Jesus or an apostle or a Christian in the New Testament in scripture. We have zero pictures, zero goose egg of a story, a narrative where a Christian, a believer had a demon cast out of them. Now let's go into some of the examples. Because they'll say, oh yeah, 
Well, and here's really the only two that I've ever heard people put forward as individual stories in the New Testament. Again, remember my point. If you're looking in the Gospels, you can't use that as an argument in this argument because Jesus had not yet died. And, and when, when the opponents of this argument try to act like that's, oh, you guys always say that, can't use the Gospels because Jesus hasn't died and resurrected yet. That's a huge point. Because remember, no one could be a Christian before Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Nobody could be a Christian. And that's, that's not a small thing. That's a major argument. Because remember something, before Christianity was available, nobody could be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's important, especially in this discussion. Because Paul teaches that when you're a Christian, that your body, he wrote this to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you, makes his home in you, right? And that uh, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, and he's quickening your mortal body. That every Christian's salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. You can't even be a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit within you. Again, I've said this before, I'm saying it again, I'm not making the apostolic argument that you have to speak in tongues and be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be saved. I'm not saying that. I'm saying whether you speak in tongues or not, there's no way to be a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit living within you. No question. The first thing Jesus said when he saw his disciples after his resurrection was what? End of the Gospel of John. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And he breathed upon them. That was their conversion. That was not them being baptized in the Holy Ghost. That happened later on the day of Pentecost. When Jesus said, receive ye the Holy Ghost and breathed upon them, they became new creations in Christ Jesus. They're being saved. Every Christian's salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's a big point. Because when you're making this argument or you're in this discussion, what you have to make the argument then is that a demon can possess your spirit, but that would mean that he would evict the Holy Spirit. And that's not the case. And, and why do you say, people would ask me, why do you say that it means that it, they would have to evict the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you why. Matthew chapter 12. It's something that Jesus mentioned when he was talking about casting out devils. Matthew chapter 12. Please make note of these references because they will help you in understanding this. You say, why would you even take time to deal with this on a broadcast? Because it's a dangerous doctrine that if you're teaching this, especially to mature, immature believers, that would build a fear in their heart, an anxiety. Maybe I'll become demon-possessed. Maybe I am demon-possessed. And you've got uneducated believers You've got young believers, baby Christians, that have been told this. You know, the reason you're going through all that is because you've got a demon. Oh, I, I need to get this demon out of me. You can't be demon-possessed as a Christian. The Bible doesn't teach it. And I'm going to show you that through this whole broadcast. You can be attacked by the enemy. You can be oppressed by the enemy. But that does not mean he has control of your body, control of your mind, control of your spirit. That, that is not how that works. And I'll show you from Scripture. 
I'll show you from scripture. You can be attacked, but you have, remember, you've got authority over the devil. Remember this, you have authority over the devil. It's been given unto you by Christ. He said, I get Luke chapter 10. I give unto you authority over all the power of the devil. Luke 10, 19, I give unto you authority, exousia, over all of the dunamis of the devil, the authority over the power, right? So the devil doesn't have authority over you. You've got authority over him. Demons don't have authority over you. You have authority over them. The devil can't come in and do whatever he wants to you. No, uh, the Bible says that you have the shield of faith, Ephesians chapter six, that you can lift up and it extinguishes every fiery dart of the wicked one. Every, not some, every single one. So Jesus is dealing with this in Matthew chapter 12 after he um, has ministered uh, to a demon possessment. Now, I want, I want you to see this. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him. Notice what he did. He healed him. He healed him. Uh, and so the man spoke and saw. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? They're asking, the Jews are saying, can this possibly be the Messiah standing in front of us? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Verse 26, and if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now watch this. This is a very important passage for you to get in your spirit, starting in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Notice the context we're here in is demon possession and casting out demons. That's the context. I'm not adding my own context to this passage. This is already what Jesus is talking about. And he says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then he talks to them about blasphemy because that's what they were doing. You're doing that, but you're attributing the works of God to demon spirits. And that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. So, so I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. How can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless you first bind up the strong man? And so here's the question I would pose to anyone who makes this argument. How can a demon spirit come into the strong man's house? That is you, the, the temple of the Holy Ghost. How can a demon spirit come into a strong man's house? That's the Holy Ghost in you and bind him up to then plunder his goods. Remember something, we are his goods. The Bible, Paul taught that to the Corinthians. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. You've been bought with a price. So honor God with your body. You don't belong to you. You've been purchased with a price. What's the price? The blood of Jesus. So when Paul and John 
and others refer to themselves as slaves of Christ, they're speaking very literally. I'm a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ. I am his bondservant. Why? Because he bought me. I used to be a slave of sin, but then he purchased me by his own precious blood and now he owns me. That's why you can't say my body, my choice, because it's not your body. It's Christ's body. So no Christian can say my body, my choice. Jesus owns your body. He owns your mind. He owns your spirit. He purchased you. He purchased you. And Carrie knows what I'm talking about. She said, they'll say it can't come take over his spirit, but it can be in their body or soul. And so this is the point that I'm going to make. It's the exact point that I'm going to make. Again, in the old covenant, we see these things happening. Jesus did these things. But where in the New Testament do we see a demon being cast out of a Christian? Where in the New Testament? Where after the Gospels? Because the Gospels, though in the New Testament, are an interim period. There's no Christians in the Gospels until the very end, after the resurrection. So the gospel is like an interim period as Jesus is fulfilling the law of Moses and doing what he was sent to do, showing the will of the father on the earth and bringing about redemption. So it's an interim period, but everybody living in the gospels was living under the old covenant, under the law of Moses. Everybody was, including Jesus, including Jesus. And he was fulfilling it. So you can't use those arguments and say, see, here's where Jesus cast a demon out of someone. No, it doesn't even matter if they were Jews that were followers of God, because that's one of the arguments that I received. Notice that the Jews were casting out demons out of God's covenant people. doesn't matter. They didn't have the Holy Spirit living in their bodies. They couldn't. They couldn't. So that's an irrelevant argument because the Holy Spirit was not living in them. They were not the temple of the Holy Spirit. They were unsaved. Remember something, every Jew, hear what I'm saying to you. Every Jew in the Old Testament and in the Gospels was unsaved. They were not Christians. They couldn't be. It was impossible. Without the blood of Jesus being shed, they were sinners. That's why that when they would give blood sacrifice or what the Old Testament calls the atonement offering, remember what that did. The blood of the animal just covered their sins. It didn't remove their sins. It was an annual offering that covered their sins. Their sins were still there. What did Isaiah say? Your righteousness is as filthy rags. That's why we had to be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Because our righteousness is like filthy, unclean rags. And I've taught about that too, what that actually means. Menstrual cloths, used menstrual cloths, which if you read the Old Testament, Leviticus, that's when a woman was considered unclean and anything she touched was considered unclean and had to be cleansed by purification, right? And that's what Isaiah is using that verbiage to say your own, your righteousness is unclean. That's what Isaiah is saying by the spirit of God. Your human righteousness is unclean and must be purified. And that's why we must be made the righteousness of God in Christ by grace through faith. That's exactly what it is in the New Testament. So I don't care if you make a point, thank God for what Jesus did in his ministry, but he was doing it to sinners. And he understood that. And the apostles understood that after redemption. Because only after redemption did somebody become a new creation, 
become the righteousness of God in Christ, and become the temple of the Holy Spirit. So where, from Acts all the way to Revelation, do we have a picture of a Christian being delivered from a demon spirit? You don't see it. You don't see a Christian having a demon cast out of them anywhere, Acts to Revelation. Okay, so let's move forward to some of these other arguments. Um, <laughs> I love these. One of the things that, that proponents of this argument will do is they'll use what we call arguments from silence. Arguments from silence. What's an argument from silence? Well, the Bible doesn't say it, so it must be possible. One of the questions I received, the Bible doesn't teach believers can't be demonized. Well, no, it in fact does teach that. And I just used Matthew 12 to show you that Jesus is saying that the power of the Holy Ghost is greater than the power of demons. But if it doesn't teach that, then how come that all of these things that we're warned against by the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle Peter, by John, all of the sinful things, the wicked things that Christians are warned against, show me one place that when a Christian is manifesting, even the most wicked things, even the most wicked things, why do the apostles just tell them, discipline yourself, use self-control, put your body under, make the right choices, walk in the spirit, and then you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why is there never just a deliverance service? Say, I know there's a man in Corinth who's been sleeping with his stepmother. It's been very wicked. It's very, it's crazy. It's not something becoming of a church member. So we're coming there to have a deliverance service and cast that spirit of lust out of him. They didn't say that. They warned him and warned him and warned him. And when he wouldn't obey, they just kicked him out. They kicked him out. Then they turned him over to Satan, right? Then they did. But what did they do later on? Okay, he's been outside the fold long enough. Bring him back in so that he won't be destroyed eternally, right? How come they never cast the demon out of him? I'm coming in there. We're going to have a, a deliverance from lust service. How come they never did that? They just told him, walk by the Spirit. Use self-control, put your body under, and do what the Bible says. And the Bible was still being written at that time, but they knew it was Scripture. Peter recognized Paul's writings as Scripture in the Bible. So you ever, you ever wonder why the early churches didn't have deliverance services for Christians like that? It's because they didn't think Christians had demons in them. That's why. Why is there an absence of that? And I, I realize that mine is also an argument from silence, but we see it. We, it's not like we don't see demons being cast out in the New Testament. We do see it. We do see it, but we don't ever see it out of a Christian. We see it out of sinners, sorcerers, fortune tellers, but we don't ever see it out of a Christian. Okay, let's move forward because there are really two places that they will take you to say, no, here's a Christian that had a demon. Okay, let's look at those places then. The first is in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. So let's go to Acts chapter 5. Let's go to Acts chapter 5. By the way, you can study Acts chapter 5 all you want to in the Greek language. And you'll not find the word daimonizomai, demonized or demon-possessed. You'll not find that word anywhere in the text in Acts chapter 5. You know why? Because Ananias nor Sapphira were demon-possessed or demonized. They were not demon-possessed, nor were they demonized. And I'm going to explain to you what they were 
and, and I'm going to say something else very interesting that nobody seems to ever think of. But Ananias and Sapphira, who were Christians, were not demonized, nor were they demon-possessed. And the text shows us. I'll start reading with verse number one, Acts 5, verse number one. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now, by the way, this comes, remember, in the original manuscripts, there are no chapters and verses. Those were added centuries later for our own personal reference. So to give you some context, the end of chapter four of Acts just comes out of uh, Luke explaining that the believers had all things in common. And if there were needs in the church, then believers would sell their possessions, take the excess, and provide for those in need. And so this was a common happening in the early church. And the Bible says they had all things in common and nobody had any needs. Nobody had any needs. So this was, all Christians were doing this. So obviously the pressure was on. Oh, if we're all going to provide for those in need, then we all need to be pitching in and doing what the church is doing. Well, Ananias and Sapphira did it, or so it seemed they did it. Because right after the Bible tells us that at the end of chapter four, we go into five. But, so let me read it to you as though there's no chapter breaks and listen to the context. I'm starting in Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But... A man named Ananias. Now we start chapter five. It starts with but in the English. It starts with but because now it's going to give you a contrast, right? It's going to provide a contrast. Everybody was doing it. In fact, uh, Barnabas did it, but Ananias did this. Well, what did Ananias do? But an, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So they did the same thing. They sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? Now, who, do, who contrived the deed? Notice, you've contrived this deed in your heart. Not a demon that's in you. Get this. Not a demon that's inhabiting you. No, you contrived this deed in your heart. So we're going to look at the whole context. Um, you've not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear come upon all that heard it. And the young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Okay, so, so look at this now. Uh, all that the text says... Again, it doesn't use the word in the Greek, uh, daimonizomai. It's not any, anywhere in there. It doesn't say that Ananias was demonized or demon-possessed. And this is where they are splitting hairs. It says, uh, when Peter said, how is Satan, uh, let me read the exact text in the ESV. It says, um, chap uh, chapter 5, verse 3, 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The word cardia, which that's the word for heart, where we get like cardio. The word cardia in the Greek language, if you look at the, um, the uh, concise Greek English dictionary, it is a word that is like synonymous with a soul, your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's like your, um, your, your heart is being spoken of, but uh, the dictionary says there that the word cardia is used specifically when dealing with your thinking, your meditations, or your imaginations. So the reason that the writer here is saying, well, cardia, what happened? Satan is tempting him, right, with what? Greed. Obviously, Ananias and Sapphira had an issue with what? Greed, a love of money. Because if they didn't, why wouldn't they just sell the land and give all the money to the apostles? They kept, who did they keep the portion back for? Themselves. So Satan is tempting him with greed. Why has Satan filled your heart? But then the same apostle in the same context says, why have you contrived this in your heart? So Satan tempted him. He filled his mind with these thoughts, filled his heart, his imagination with this greed. I could sell it keep a portion for myself and then give another portion to the apostles and say it was the whole amount. And then we could have all this extra for ourselves. That's, that's what he's thinking. And then the same apostle that said, Satan filled your heart, your cardia, your mind, your thoughts, your meditations. He put these thoughts in you, but you contrived, you made this decision to do it. The thoughts came. Okay. So how does, okay. So let's look at this now again. He's not demonized. He's not demon possessed. And all that Satan did is what all that Satan ever does tempts you with thoughts, deceptions, right? And so if we look at this, because we know Ananias and Sapphira were both believers, they were both believers. So, uh, first of all, Paul's instruction to Timothy, first Timothy six, the love of money is what the root of all kinds of evil. That's where those evils begin. According to Paul, who was inspired by the Holy spirit, when you love money, it is the origin of all kinds of evil. That's what happened in Ananias and Sapphira's life is that they loved money. So the temptation came to keep a portion for themselves and then lie to the Holy Spirit. They, they weren't demon possessed. They contrived it in their own heart. The Bible's very clear about that. So then that means that they had the ability to do what Paul encouraged the Corinthian church to do, to take every thought captive and make it obey Jesus Christ right? They, like every other believer, had the ability and they rejected the ability to do that. They rejected the ability to do that. So they could have, and again, if you need that reference, I'll take you there. But in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, I want you to hear this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that means that believers have the authority and the ability to take every thought captive and make it obey Jesus Christ. 
So that means Ananias and Sapphira, when the enemy tempted their cardia, their heart, their imaginations, their meditations with greed to keep back a portion for themselves, they had the authority, just like every other believer, to take those thoughts captive and make them obey Jesus Christ, to put their flesh under and do what the, uh, the apostles uh, said should be done or what the church was doing, and to obey Christ and not lie to the Holy Spirit. So notice... Yes, Ananias was tempted. The enemy tried to fill his heart with these thoughts and succeeded because Ananias fell into temptation. So here's a question. So because I just showed you all of that, let me show you something. What do we do? What does the Bible say we do if someone has a demon spirit? First of all, what are we commanded to do? Secondly, in every example of someone who's demon possessed, what did the apostles do? What did Jesus do? Mark 16, we are to cast out devils, expel them. We're to expel them. We cast them out. Jesus came across demon-possessed people. He cast the demons out of them. The apostles came across demon-possessed people. They cast the demons out of them. So here's a question. If this is a picture of Ananias who is demon-possessed or even demonized, why did the apostles, specifically Peter, why did Peter not cast the demon out of Ananias? Why did he not cast the demon out of Sapphira? Because there was not a demon to cast out. Because they're not demon-possessed and they're not demonized. They allowed themselves to fall into temptation through the love of money, which is the origin of all kinds of evil. And then they made a decision in their heart to keep the money for themselves and lie to the man of God and ultimately lie to the Holy Spirit. The reason, so if you're going to use this as a proof text, every person in that camp that says, I'm going to use that as a proof text, then you have to say that the proper method when somebody is demonized is to wait for God to strike them dead in the New Testament. Just wait for God. Don't cast the demon out. Do like Ananias and let God strike them dead immediately. And that's not what's happening here. Clearly. If people would just read the context of Scripture, that's not what's happening here. The, the word daimonizomai, not used anywhere in the text, doesn't say that he was filled with, the, filled with the devil, filled with demon. He said, why has he filled your heart with these things? Your imaginations, the word heart there. Imaginations, your thoughts, your intents. And then the apostle clearly says, you made the choice. The demon in you did not control you. He put the thoughts in your heart. You fell to that temptation. You made a choice. And now judgment is coming upon you. That's all that is. It's not a picture of a Christian being demon-possessed or even demonized. Let me tell you, every Christian, I mean, put your hand in the comments up if the enemy has tried to tempt you with thoughts. Put your hand up. I'll put both hands up. Because the enemy has tried to use deceptive thoughts against me. He's tried to tempt me with thoughts. Of course, that's how the devil works. Can I give you something that may blow your mind? The devil tempted Jesus with thoughts. Put that in your spirit. The devil tempted Jesus with thoughts. Matthew 4 and Luke 4, during his temptation. Was Jesus demon-possessed? Please. Please, are you demon-possessed or demonized because the devil's tempted you with thoughts? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's ridiculous. The Bible tells us how to deal with these things. Set your mind on things above. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed. 
Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take every thought captive and make it obey Jesus Christ. You're not demon-possessed and you're not demonized. People have an abundance of flesh nature working in their life. An abundance of flesh nature. And there's people say, well, you know, I know a Christian that had a demon cast out of him. You, you say they were a Christian. Anyone can say they're a Christian. Anyone, what does the Bible say though? You'll know them by what? Their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. Let me tell you, being demon possessed is rotten fruit. If I, if I see somebody that's like, no, I'm, I'm a Christian, and they're manifesting demons inside them that are controlling them, speaking out in guttural tones, let me tell you something. Might be a sign you're not born again. It's like mind-blowing that you have to explain these things to people, but it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. There's people doing entire conferences where they're calling demons out of Christians. And you got weak-minded, immature believers that are out there, man, you don't have a demon. You have an abundance of flesh and you don't know the Bible. And if you do have a true demon in you, it's, it's because you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And if you were a Christian at one point, you've walked away. You've walked away. You've left your salvation, opened yourself back up. You can lose your salvation. I don't care what anybody says. The other passage they'll take you to often is Acts chapter 8. What about Simon the sorcerer, they'll say. Okay, let's deal with that. Let's deal with that. What about Simon the sorcerer? Let's talk about it. Acts chapter 8. Uh, if you know what's happening in Acts chapter 8, Philip leaves Jerusalem because of persecution and goes to Samaria to preach Christ. And the Bible says that starting in verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now notice, he's in the midst of preaching the gospel and signs follow the preaching of the gospel. It's a sign that Jesus is alive. It's a sign that there's power in the name of Jesus and power in the gospel. So notice, the Bible says, when they heard him, uh, they paid attention to what he was saying when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that the people he was casting demons out of were Christians. No, he went there for the specific purpose of getting them saved. Right? Now look at this. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the, pow is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because they, uh, for a long time, they were amazed with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here we see Simon the sorcerer gets saved. 
And I'm not denying that Simon the sorcerer became a Christian. You say, well, you don't think he was, he was saved. No, no, I believe, I've preached this many times. I believe that Simon the sorcerer believed, became a Christian, and was baptized. But I think something happened. Because of what? He never let go of his love of money, once again. His love of power. His love of power. His pride. I want to continue to be seen great. I still want to have power to amaze these people. I still want to be considered, right? So what does he do? And this one always bugs me. Because if he had just waited a little longer, he would have understood that all believers have the power to lay hands on others and see them filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just the apostles. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God, they, came, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered the money saying, give me this power also so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And the Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Okay, so if Simon was demon possessed there, why didn't the apostle Cast the demon out of him. Why? I don't see anywhere. I don't see, first of all, I don't see anywhere in this passage where um, it says even that Simon was manifesting demonically or that he had a demon. I don't see any of that. And looking through this passage, um, when you go through what what was actually said to him, He got saved and again, still has this pride. I want to be seen. I want to buy that power. I want to be, I want to be famous. I want to be known. Okay. And he says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart's not right before God. Okay. Your heart's not right before God. That doesn't mean you have a demon. Where does it say that? I mean, like this is, this is such poor theological work from these proponents of this Christians can be demon-possessed. This is such poor, it's such poor theological work. It's such poor hermeneutical discipline to just randomly say, no, no, Simon was demon-possessed after being, after being a Christian. He was demon-possessed. Where is that in the Bible? I just read the whole passage to you. Where is that? All the apostle said is your heart is not right before God. Repent of your wickedness. Doesn't say as a demon. Doesn't say he's Diamonitsumai doesn't say he's demonized or demon possessed at all. It says that he did something that was wicked, thinking he could purchase the power of God with money because of his pride. He had been called great because of his magical abilities. Now that he's a Christian, he still wants to hang on to that. I still want to be great in their eyes. So let me pay for this power. And I want to be able to. Why? Why would you think that the Bible is teaching here? that a Christian is demon-possessed, and if he is, I ask the same question, okay? I ask the same question 
to these people that believe this, if he is demon possessed, why didn't he, why didn't the apostles cast the demon out of Simon? Why did they just tell him to repent? And where do you get that he had a demon? I mean, I don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. I'm looking here at the English text. I'm looking here at the Greek text. I don't see it. I do not see it. So explain to me where that comes from. Yes, if you do something wicked, even after you're a Christian, if you do something wicked, what do you do? Repent. You ask for forgiveness. You repent. You turn from those ways and you go back to doing what pleases the Lord. That's what every Christian should do. doesn't mean because you made a mistake or committed a sin that you're demon-possessed or that you're demonized. It just means that you didn't do what the Word of God said and you yielded to the flesh rather than to the Spirit. So, just like the apostles taught all the Christians, set your mind on things above, discipline your flesh, make it do what it should, right? Have self-control, walk in love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance, obey the word of God. Paul told them, live like I live, imitate me as I imitate Christ. doesn't mean you got a demon. And this man didn't, it doesn't say he had a demon, especially after he was saved. It doesn't say that. Amen. And so I marked those two out completely. The Bible does not say Ananias, Sapphira, or Simon had a demon spirit. The apostles didn't attempt to cast the demon spirit out of them. For Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck dead for their lying to the Holy Spirit. And for Simon, he was just told to repent. That's it. That's it. It says nothing about demons. Nothing about de being demonized. None of that. Okay? So let's just put that out of our minds right off the bat. Because neither of those is a legitimate scriptural argument. It's pure foolishness invented for the purpose. Now, if you want to know, if you want to see a clear picture of eisegesis, and if you don't know what eisegesis versus exegesis is, eisegesis is when you uh, add things to the text, right? Exegesis is what you pull out what the text already has. Eisegesis is when you add things to the text. You add your own interpretation that's clearly not there. Clearly not there. And it's a foundational hermeneutical mistake when you study the scripture. It's a mistake. That's why we launched Bible study made simple because I want Christians to understand how to rightly divide the word of God and not make these simple mistakes that then shoot off into weird fringe doctrines that are not taught in the Bible. And then you've got young Christians being, you know, deceived. I think maybe I have a, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm demon possessed. I need to have a demon cast out of me. You got preachers that are literally so foolish that they're saying to each other, hey, I already checked my heart. I don't think I have a demon in me, but would you mind uh, checking me to see if, if I've got a demon and if you find one, cast it out of me. I don't want anybody like that standing in a pulpit in front of me. If you're a preacher supposedly filled with the Holy Ghost and you're not sure whether or not you've got a demon spirit in you, you have no business in a pulpit, none. You're a fool. An absolute fool and a novice and should be moved out of the pulpit and sat down and given some teaching from the word of God. That's exactly what should happen. That's straight up foolishness, foolishness. All right, let's go further. I said, what about Galatians? If you don't think a Christian can be demon possessed, what about Galatians 3.1? All right, let's go to Galatians 3.1. Let's go to Galatians 3.1. Um, it says, Paul writes this to the Galatians. You foolish Galatians 
Who has cast a spell on you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified. Another translation says it like this. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? Let me read here to you, by the way. Let me read to you a, uh, a commentary by the scholars who translated the NET. This is what they see. The word uh, bewitched here, uh, they said it's the word deceived. Who has deceived you? Who has deceived you? It can be understood figuratively to refer to an act of deception. So, first of all, please read the whole book of Galatians. We did, a, by the way, we did an entire verse-by-verse study of the book of Galatians in Bible Study Made Simple, and now we've made it available to anyone that wants to get in on it in Miracle Word University, miraclewordu.com. And we go through all of Galatians verse by verse, teach you how to study a book of the Bible. And we break this whole book, this whole letter to the Galatians down so you can see what's going on. But let me break it down for you quickly here. The reason, you can't pluck this verse out of Galatians. You pluck it out and see, see, they, they, were, they had a demon spirit that was deceiving them. They were bewitched. The Galatian Christians had a demon. No, they didn't. Understand what Paul's trying to get across to them. Who deceived you into believing another gospel? Read the whole letter. He was rebuking the Galatians for believing a gospel that was contrary to the gospel that he preached to them. He said, you've already had the gospel preached unto you. In fact, part of his letter to the Galatians is him uh, reaffirming to them. Don't you know, you're already Christians. You don't need circumcision to really and truly become a Christian. He said, you're already Christians and you've already had the Holy Spirit working among you already. So why would you think you need to do what these Judaizers are saying and circumcise yourself? And he says this, mutilate yourself. Why do you think you need to mutilate yourself in order to be a Christian? You're already Christians. You already have the Holy Spirit working among you. Paul is in no way teaching anywhere in Galatians that the Galatian Christians have a demon or have demons, and he never tries to cast a demon out of them. He doesn't say, I'm coming back there to cast the demon out of you guys. He, said, he doesn't say, I'm going to send apostles to your church and cast these demons. We're going to have a deliverance service in Galatia, and I'm going to cast them demons. No, he says, you've been deceived by believing a contrary gospel. And then he says, parenthetically, which is no gospel, for there's only one gospel. And they've lied to you and told you things that are not true and you've believed it. And if you study the Galatians, the Gauls, historically, uh, even a king, a, a, a king set of them, they are, they are very fickle people that always want to change their minds and believe a new thing. Whatever the fad is, that's what the Gauls want to believe. So it actually plays right into their nature. They had the gospel of Christ. Ooh, a new message. Ooh, a new message. Ooh, a new message. And that's why Paul rebukes them. Paul rebukes them. So we can write that off. Galatians 3.1 is not teaching that the Galatians had a demon spirit. They're not demonized. They're not demon possessed. They were deceived by wrong teaching. By wrong teaching. What's the, what is the uh, antidote for wrong teaching? Right teaching. Right teaching. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Right? And so you understand something. Um, we can totally rule out Ananias and Sapphira. We can totally rule out Simon the sorcerer. We can totally rule out the Galatians. There's still no picture of a Christian being demon-possessed, having a demon cast out of them. 
or being demonized and being delivered from a demon spirit. We have no pictures in the New Testament, none, zero. This is a false doctrine. And listen, I'm not vilifying uh, like the, the gentleman that was speaking to me yesterday, either of them. I'm not vilifying them. I know they have a heart to help people. They are genuinely of the belief that a Christian can be demon possessed and they want to see Christians delivered. The issue is they're, they're genuine, but they're genuine in a deception of a false teaching that's not, it's not biblical. No one that I've ever spoken to on this subject has been able to point me to any passage in the New Testament that backs up this theory. Nobody, not anyone. And I'm looking at a whole page of them right here and none of them make any sense. Not scripturally, not any of them. Um, 2 Timothy 1.7 was given to me. You know, the Bible says, Paul wrote to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So you see, brother, there's a spirit of fear. Okay, but you're not possessed by a, a, a spirit of fear. A spirit of fear can oppress you, can try to come against your mind. What do you do? What do you do? You take authority over it. You take authority over it. What did, the, what did Paul write the Philippians? Philippians chapter four. Let's, let's read that. What, what do you do when anxiety comes against you? What do you do when uh, fear comes against you? What do you do? I'll tell you what the Apostle Paul says you do. In uh, Philippians chapter 4, he says this. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything. He didn't say, if you got a spirit of fear or a spirit of anxiety, let me come cast it out of you. He just commands them, don't be anxious. Just choose not to be. Then he says this, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Watch this now. So what is the antidote for anxiety, spirit of anxiety? The antidote is prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. What happens? Verse seven, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving provoke the peace of God, which is a shield that guards your heart and your mind. Not a deliverance service to cast it out of you. No, pray. Pray and, thanks, and give God thanksgiving. Do those two things. Supplication is a form of prayer to be supplied by God, to make your requests known unto him. And the Bible says when you do those things, then you provoke the peace of God that passes all understanding that does what? It guards your hearts and minds against what? Anxiety, fear. Amen. You take authority over it. You pray and you thank God. What's the, what's the antidote for depression? Praise. He said, I'll give unto them a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. A garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. What takes place when you begin to praise God? God inhabits the praises of his people, Psalm 22, 3. What happens when you get into his presence and activate it? Psalm 16, 11, there is fullness of joy in his presence, fullness of joy. So what do you do if that heaviness tries to come on you? If that depression tries to, you praise your way out of it. Praise is an antidote for heaviness and depression. Prayer and thanksgiving are antidotes for anxiety and fear, according to scripture. Doesn't say you need a deliverance service. Doesn't say you need a demon cast out of you. It says you need to abide by what the Bible says. 
people neglect the Spirit of God and then they wonder why they're battling. They neglect God's Spirit. They neglect His presence. They don't pray. They don't read the Word. They don't attend church faithfully. I mean, they don't give thanksgiving. They don't praise. And then they wonder, I don't know why I feel so empty. I don't know why I feel so neglected. I feel like God's nowhere close. That's because you've moved away from Him. He's not moved away from you. Don't neglect God's presence and then complain why, that you don't have any of the benefits of His presence. That's something that you should put in the comments, tweet, write down, share on your story. Don't neglect God's presence and complain that you don't have the benefits of his presence. Don't neglect God's presence and then complain that you don't have the benefits of his presence. Don't neglect God's presence and complain you don't have the benefits of his presence. Don't refuse to pray, refuse to read the word, refuse to praise, refuse to rejoice and give thanks to God, refuse to attend his house, refuse to get in his presence and say, I don't know why I feel so far from God. I can tell you why. You don't give time to his presence. You don't encourage yourself in the Lord. You don't build up faith. You don't stir up faith. You got to take actions to do those things. So don't neglect it. It's like never going to the gym. I don't know why I got no muscle mass on my body. You know, do you ever go to the gym? No, I don't, I don't go to the gym. Do you ever run? Do you ever work out? Do you ever do push-ups? No, I don't do any of those. Uh, but I don't know why I got no muscle mass on my body. I just wish God would give me more muscle. You got to do something to have muscle mass. I understand why I keep gaining weight. Well, are you on a diet? Do you, have you cut your calories? Have you begun to exercise? Well, no, I just eat what I want. Then don't be mad. Don't be mad. Don't neglect the presence of God and then complain you don't have the benefits of his presence. It's foolishness. It's straight up foolishness. So there's nowhere in the scripture that teaches this stuff. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Yeah, fear is a spirit according to scripture, but it doesn't possess you and nor is it something that has to be cast out of you. The Bible tells us how to deal with fear. You know, if, 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 the, if Jesus can come to the disciples who didn't even have the Holy Spirit and say, fear not. Why are you so afraid? He didn't cast the spirit of fear off of his disciples. He said, why are you so afraid? Don't, don't fear. Fear not. Why do you have so little faith? Why are you afraid? That's what he said to them. He rebuked them for having fear. Didn't cast the spirit of fear off of them. He rebuked them. Why are you afraid? Fear not. Amen. And so again, you know, you go through these things and it's mind-blowing that, uh, that people don't see this, but this is basic, uh, Bible study, dividing the word. I want to show you another one that they'll use second Corinthians chapter 11 verses three and four I'm taking my time. And this is going to be a little bit longer because it needs to be dealt with. Again, I'm going to go back and timestamp this broadcast so that people can go through each section and, and properly, if you have to go through it more than once, study it for yourself. You'll, you'll find exactly what I've found. It's called proper interpretation of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 11, and I'm not saying that in a condescending way. We have to all be students of the Word. Paul told Timothy, uh, study to show yourself approved a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed who can rightly divide the Word of truth. And again, you saying, bro, I've seen it. Bro. I've seen it happen. That's not an argument. I don't care what you've seen. Your eyes can deceive you. And just because you don't, the Bible says man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. 
You don't know if someone's a Christian unless their life is producing fruit that a Christian's life would produce. So, bro, I've seen Christians get delivered from demons. You've not, I don't care what you think you've seen. I'm looking for scripture. I don't build my doctrine on what, bro, I was at a conference. I don't build my doctrine on what you saw at a conference somewhere. I build it on what does the inspired, inerrant, written word of God say. That's the only way we can build doctrine. Only way. Only way. 2 Corinthians 11. Okay. Uh, Paul, again, is dealing with false apostles, false teachers. Let me say that again. What's the context of 2 Corinthians 11? Paul is dealing with false apostles, false teachers. So let's look at that in context. I'll start with verse one. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now look at verses three and four, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Verse four, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Okay, so in context, what's he talking about? Is he speaking to them about becoming demon-possessed? No. You know, this is, how, this is how shallow people are in their Bible study. They'll see that. They'll pluck that. Oh, he said, if you receive a different spirit from the one you receive, that must mean they're becoming demon-possessed. They're becoming demon-possessed. Oh, I see it. I see it. They're becoming demon-possessed now. No, he's not talking about becoming demon-possessed. Notice what he's teaching. He's saying, you're being, I'm, I'm concerned that you'll be led away from the sins, from your devotion to Christ into a false gospel, a false message. Same thing he was worried about with the Galatians. You're listening to false teaching from false pharisaical, you know, Jews, these Judaizers, and they're teaching you a false gospel. Same thing with the Corinthians. I'm concerned that you'll keep listening to this false teaching. And look at this. And uh, if they proclaim another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So notice how, how is it that they would receive those things through false teaching from false apostles has nothing. He's not talking about being demon possessed. He's not talking about being demonized. He's saying, I'm concerned that if you keep listening to false doctrine, it'll lead you away from your devotion to Jesus Christ, to some other sect that is a false gospel and a false religion. Again, he has nothing to say to them in any of this passage. He doesn't go on to say, and if you do receive a false spirit, I'll come back and cast the demons out of you. It's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that. He's talking about listening to false teaching from false apostles that would take them away from their devotion to Christ and lead them astray. And eventually they'd become apostate. And in worst case scenario there, they would fall away from the faith. They would leave the faith. Notice what will cause men to leave, faith in the, leave the faith in the last days. Doctrines of demons. False teaching that is developed by demonic forces. To what? Lead men astray from Christ and his gospel. That's what. Not uh, being demon-possessed. It's not talking about that. It's talking about false teaching that leads people astray. 
And so this is not a passage. Again, 2 Corinthians 11 is not a passage showing Christians being demon-possessed. Far from it. And to actually assume that, I mean, unbelievable. It's, 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 it's improper. It's improper. Let me deal with just a couple of more. Just a couple more. Go with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 5. First Peter chapter five. Go there with me. Um, here's a passage that they'll use. They see every Christian's in danger of being devoured by the devil. Okay, well, let's talk about it. Um, let me start with 1 Peter 5, 5. We'll go to 5, 8 uh, and 9. In fact, let me just read you uh, the whole context from, from verse 1 on. I'm not going to pluck scriptures out of context. I'm going to read you the whole context. First Peter 5, 1 Peter 5.1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse five, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse six, the Bible says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse seven, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Let me stop there. By the way, here's another passage talking about anxiety and fear. Does it say, if you've got anxiety and fear, then you need to have one of us apostles come to you and cast that demon out of you. You're being demonized. No, he said, you take your anxieties and cast them upon God. That's your responsibility. It's not somebody to come to you and cast a demon out of you or off of you. Take your anxieties, take your fears, and cast them upon God. Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Verse 8, here's the one they love to pluck out. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's looking for somebody to devour. The word there, devour, is just the word that can mean overwhelm, to drown, to swallow up to devour. So what's the answer there? Verse nine is the answer. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, hold on, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So can I ask you a question? If we, re if we stay in the context if we stay in the context, 
What does the devil's devouring look like to these believers? According to Peter, he said, resist him and stand firm, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced. So what is the devouring? The devouring is that the, that the enemy wants to come and use those that are opposed to Christianity to persecute and cause Christians to suffer, which happened for three centuries after Christ until Constantine brought about the peace of the church. So it's not, this, is, this has nothing to do with being demon-possessed. Notice, resist that devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced to your, by your brotherhood around the world. So is it possible, I mean the context shows it here, but is it possible that the Christians in Asia Minor, who, it's who Peter's writing to, is it possible that the Christians were being tempted to run away from the faith because of the persecutions that were taking place against Christians? That, that's what he's telling them. So how would the devil devour them? Look at this now. The Bible according to, and, and look at the whole context of, you have to read the whole letter too. He's writing to the Christians at Asia Minor. Before chapter five ever starts, what's he writing about? Suffering as a Christian. What, what are they suffering? Persecutions. Persecutions. Well, let me read that to you in case, I mean, people don't get this. We're stewards of God's grace. Suff, verse chapter three, suffering for righteousness sake, right? Submission to authority, a living stone as holy people called to be set apart unto God. So what is he warning them against? Don't be thrown off by persecution. Don't be thrown off by persecution. Be ready to endure it. There's Christians still to this day enduring persecution around the world. Should they run away from Christianity because there's persecution? No. Stand firm in your faith, Peter wrote. So let me read this. Chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if any, so what is he saying here? Let me stop before 16. He's saying your suffering should not be because you did something wrong. You shouldn't be a murderer or a thief or a, a, a meddler. And then you get stripes upon your back or thrown into jail. You should be uh, beaten and thrown into jail, Paul, uh, Peter's saying. Because you, you're, you're suffering for wickedness. But, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. They're being killed to a faithful creator while doing good. And then you get to chapter five. Again, there's no chapter breaks in these letters originally. Now look at this, uh, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, he's still talking through this whole letter about this same problem. The, resist the devil, firm in your faith, stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your faith. Don't run away from Christianity because there's persecution. 
Don't run away because there's sufferings. The, de the devil would love to devour you that way. Take the easy way out. Take the easy life. Deny Christ and leave the faith. Oh, you're devoured. You've been overwhelmed by what? The persecutions. No, don't do that. Resist the devil. Resist the temptation to run away at the sight of persecution, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's what this is in context. It's not, nothing to do with demon possession. Nothing to do with de being demonized. It's the temptation to leave Christianity because there's suffering. Don't do it. Stay firm in your faith. Resist the devil. Resist the, the what is the devil doing? The, overwhelming you with temptation to leave because of persecution. This has nothing. Again, if people would just read their Bible, has nothing to do with being demon-possessed or demonized. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. If you're a Christian, a demon cannot overtake your spirit, cannot, cannot possess you. Cannot possess you. There's no examples of it. There's no teaching about it in the New Testament. None. Let me give you one more before we pray. Ephesians 4.27. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27. Again, I know today's a little bit longer. There's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. This needs to be discussed, needs to be broken down. And again, we will uh, add timestamps. We will add timestamps so people can go back through and see the exact things I'm talking about by section. And we'll add those chapter markers for people that rewatch. And it'll be very helpful for those that need teaching on this. Rightly divide the word of truth. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's... Uh, Let's st start with verse 25. This is where the chapter, or this is where the, um, this is where the uh, thought transition happens here. Maybe in your Bible you see a paragraph break there. That's why. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are, for we are members of one another. Verse 26, Be angry, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is written to Christians, by the way. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let me say that again. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk. So let me just say something here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep reading this, but Paul says, don't give opportunity to the devil, and then describes in his letter how you could be giving opportunity to the devil. If you were a thief before you got saved, stop stealing. Because if you're a thief and you engage in stealing, you're giving an opportunity to the devil. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. So that's another way you could give opportunity to devil to the devil. Give it, let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Don't do that. What else? Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So that's another way you give opportunity to, de to the devil by uh, grieving the Spirit of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one. So that verse 31, there's, those are other ways that you could give an opportunity to the devil with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Those are other ways you could give opportunities to the devil. Notice there's nowhere in this passage where Paul is listing demon possession or being demonized. 
He's just saying, and, and their argument was, if you know, if you go into the Greek, that word for a foothold or here, it's the word opportunity is the word tapas, which means, uh, to have, um, you know, a place I'll, I'll just pull it up right here because I'm, I'm, I'm there now. And in verse 27, it's, it's actually in this, uh, declension it's, it's, um, in its context here, it's, I believe it's tapon, tapon. Let me, yeah, it is tapon, tapon. It means a place, a location, a passage as in a book, a passage in a book, a position, a possibility or an opportunity as they, that's how they translate it in the Greek language here or from the Greek to English in the ESV opportunity. Don't give the devil, the devil, a tapon an opportunity. Don't give him any possibilities. Don't give him any positions. Don't give him any locations or places in your life by doing what? By doing those things that give him opportunity. They give him opportunity to come against you. Resist the devil. Don't, it doesn't mean he possesses you or takes possession. Paul's not even insinuating that at all. He's saying, just don't give the devil an opportunity in your life for what? Unrighteousness, wickedness. He's not telling them there's nowhere in this text that you see that he's somehow insinuating. If you do these things, you'll be demon possessed. If you do these things, you'll be demonized. He's not saying that he's saying, don't give him an opportunity to let the fruit of your life be wickedness rather than righteousness, wickedness rather than righteousness. Don't do that. Now that you're a Christian again, right? So if you look at the passage in my Bible, the ESV, the header above verse 17 is the new life, meaning the new life in Christ. Okay. So let me read that to you so that you see what I'm talking about. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So, so catch where he's going with this. Don't walk like the sinners do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, the truth in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self and created after the likeness of God, true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, and that's where we got into the part we read. So notice he's putting it on them. He didn't say, I need to come cast the demon out of you. I need to cast a demon off of you. You're diamonizo, diamonite, uh, you know, diamonizo, diamonizomai. None of those are used in this case. They're not demon possessed. They're not demonized. And it's not them being in danger of becoming demonized or demon possessed. He's saying that now you're there. Now that you're a Christian, live the way a Christian should live. Now that you're a Christian, put away your old self. Don't live like the Gentiles. Don't do any of these things that your old self would do, which would give an opportunity to the devil. To what? To have a place in your life, a foothold. doesn't mean that he controls your body and your mind. If he did, then he wouldn't allow you to resist him, would he? If he could control you by possession, he wouldn't allow you to resist him. That means you've got the control, not the devil. You've got the control, not demons. Amen. There's nowhere, again, there's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. And I'm just trying to look over these notes. There's nowhere in the scripture. And I've marked down and studied out every one of their arguments. And none of them make any sense. None of them. When you do proper biblical study, when you look at this and see even the context being used, 
has nothing to do with demon possession, being demonized, none of that. And again, as I said in the beginning, they're pressing too hard on one word and trying to make it mean things that the Bible never says that it means. It's never used in these contexts, never. Especially not with Ananias and Simon the sorcerer. Especially not with Christians in the, in, in the epistles. Not anywhere. So I, first of all, I want your mind to have peace. Knowing that as a Christian, you have no opportunity to be possessed by a demon spirit. You cannot be, now, if the devil attacks you, which he will do. The devil will try to attack Christians. What do you do in those situations? Lift up the shield of faith and quench, extinguish every fiery dart of the, of the wicked one. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Say, so how do you resist the devil? Do it the way Jesus did it. How did Jesus do it? We'll read Luke 4, read Matthew 4. When the devil tempted Jesus, what did Jesus do? It is written. And then he rebuked the devil with scripture. He used the word of God to rebuke the devil, every temptation with scripture. Amen. When the devil attacks you, tries to come against your mind, tries to come against your family, tries to come against whatever he's doing to work against you, you stand on the word of God, which how do you think you get the shield of faith? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. You stand on the word of God, you respond by the word of God, and you hold up the shield of faith and extinguish every fiery dart. Not some of them, every single one. And don't go to bed thinking, oh, I hope I don't get possessed by a demon. I hope I'm not demonized. I need to go to a deliverance service and have demons cast out of me. If you're a believer, you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. He lives in you, dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in your physical body. And he is the strong man. There's no demon that can come in and overtake him and evict him from his home. There's no demon that can do that. And for all these people that say, well, maybe the demon's not in your spirit, but the demon's in your mind. Show me in the Bible where the demon's in your mind in the New Testament. Well, maybe he's not in your mind, but he's in your body. Show me in the New Testament where the demon's in your, living in your physical body, in your flesh. Show me. It's, it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Now, are there demons that try to make people sick? Of course. Jesus dealt with a spirit of infirmity in Luke chapter 13, but it does not mean that there was a demon living in the woman's flesh. You know how I know that? Because the Bible doesn't say Jesus cast the demon out of her in Luke chapter 13, it says he healed her. He healed her. Acts 10:38 says that he healed all that were what? Oppressed of the devil. He, they need what? Healing. Not having a demon cast out of them, they needed healing. Now, there were some applications in Jesus' ministry where he did cast demons out of people that were causing people to be sick. But again, those weren't Christians. Those weren't Christians. They were sinners. Remember that. Remember that. They were sinners, not Christians. The devil has no right to live in your flesh, has no right to live in your mind, and no right to live in your spirit. None. And the Bible doesn't teach it in the New Testament context anywhere. And so I reject it fully. I reject fully that any Christian can be demon-possessed or demonized in the way that they teach it. I, that, that a Christian needs to have a demon cast out of them and go through deliverance. I reject it. I reject it because the apostles didn't teach it to the church. If they were even dealing with things, as I said, even wicked, wicked things, the apostles did not say, let's bring them into a deliverance service. They said, no, warn them to change. Warn them to subdue their flesh. Warn them to control themselves. And if they don't, reject them. Cast them out. 
No deliverance service needed. Because as a Christian, you have the power and authority to take control, to take authority over the devil, resist him, cast him. Uh, every, attempt, every attempt, every mindset, every temptation, every thought, cast it away from you. And what do you do? The Bible says that you pray, thank, praise, puts a guard around your heart. You're not filled with demons. <laughs> I can't imagine asking another preacher. Hey, listen, I've been uh, checking up on my heart, but you know, if you could just, just do just a scan on me spiritually, make sure I don't have any demons that I'm not seeing. It's like foolishness. And then they go stand in pulpits and teach others these things. Foolishness. Father, I pray for your people today. I pray that you'd fill them with faith as they study your word. I thank you, Lord, that you'd fill them with a boldness and a reassurance of who they are in Christ. Strengthen them by your spirit. Father, I pray that you would use us to bring many to Christ. I pray that you'd give us a greater understanding of your word. Give each one of them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that the, in the knowledge of you that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened in Jesus' name. Give us a full understanding as we study. And we'll be faithful to be in your presence, to study, to praise you, to pray, to thank you, to be in your presence. Uh, not only that, to be in your house, faithful to the house of God. And I thank you, Lord, that as we benefit from your presence, we'll see your peace, we'll see your joy, we will see your love, we will see self-control. The fruit of the Spirit will be in manifestation in our lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, we give you praise for that. Thanks for that. Amen. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.